Well, good morning, and if you're visiting with us this morning, we especially welcome you and are very glad that you're here with us to worship this morning. You're kind of coming in the back door, as it were, sort of, uh, in regard to a sermon series because we're entering into the last couple of weeks of the book of Revelation here. And this morning, in fact, we're, we're beginning to read the last chapter of the entire Bible. And as we do, you'll notice, I think, as uh, many of you already know, that the Bible makes use of what some might call wraparound imagery. As we read Revelation 22 here this morning, and, and you recognize that, that redemptive history, the history that the Bible accounts for of, of all of creation, begins in a garden. We read from that, from Genesis 2, <clears throat> moments ago. And that same redemptive history, of course, as it unfolds throughout all of Scripture and the narrative story that Scripture shows to us that Christianity is, ends in a garden, as it were. And that's what we're about to see as we read Revelation 22. The question that I have for you, though, as we read these few verses is this. Is this the same garden that you heard about from Genesis 2? Or is it a different one? Is it the same or is it different? Revelation 22, beginning in verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The grass withers and the flowers fade. But these words of our God stand forever. Father, we pray that you would allow for us to understand. We pray that you would indeed be uh, the light, the lamp for us to see and to recognize the good news of your gospel here in this vision, this beautiful vision of the end of time. We pray that you would give to us faith to believe these uh, good words and that you would cause us to recognize how we might change and be made new even today because of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. As John mentioned earlier, Brian Franklin emailed us this week suggesting joy to the world as part of our worship service this morning. And I thought it was a great suggestion. Brian was a little bit apologetic about it, though, I have to tell you and, and explain for him. He said, I know it's kind of unorthodox, and we knew immediately what he meant, even though he didn't explain it. You know, it's, it's May 1st, and here we are singing a Christmas song. And I thought about it for a moment, and I replied to him, and I said, you know, I think it's actually a good unorthodoxy. Because it's just a cultural orthodoxy is all that it is. But actually, where we've arrived in the book of Revelation, the earth is receiving her king. And heaven and nature surely are singing very very loudly and joyfully and robustly heaven and nature are indeed singing and you know what we ought to join in we ought to join in in singing 
with them because earth is receiving her king. The enemy has been vanquished, as we've read in these beautiful visions of Revelation. The heavenly city has come down, as we saw last week. And now the angel that is John's tour guide, as it were, at this point in these visions, guides John on a return to the garden. And as John sees this vision in these few verses here, I have to wonder if he's thinking this sort of thing. He must be thinking, I know Scripture. I've read the Bible as I have it, although that's not what John called it. It was, it was the Scripture. It was God's Word. John knew the book of Genesis, surely, and had read the creation account, was familiar with the heritage of the Jews as they had received it, as God having created all things as he did. And John must be wondering, I know the account of this garden. There was a garden in the east near Eden, and it looked sort of like this. I wonder, is this the same garden that I'm seeing ahead of me, but it looks also a little bit different? Is this the same garden? Or is it a different place altogether? And the answer, of course, to both of those questions is yes. It is the same, but it is very different at the same time. In the, that first garden, you remember the story, God had formed the man out of the dust of the ground. And as we read, placed him in that garden in order to work the garden, to, to cultivate it and to keep it even. And the man and his wife eventually had total freedom in that garden, except for one thing, which was so important, and we'll get back to it in a few moments. But Satan, the tempter, the evil one, the deceiver, about whom we've read so much in this book of Revelation, he just appears again and again, and yet we see God's control over his eventual demise, Satan appears in that garden and tempts the man and the woman to do the very thing they were told not to do. And of course, they do it and they were expelled from the garden. Now, in our day and age, in our world and culture, people, Christians and non-Christians alike, look back on those accounts of Genesis and they begin to wonder, did that really happen? Is this a historical account? Or is this just a fairy tale? Is it, is it actually true or is it legendary? Is it, is it just sort of principles explaining or illustrations explaining spiritual principles that we ought to pay attention to for our own lives? Is it just a fairy tale? Maybe it didn't really happen this way, but maybe I can still be a Christian and not believe that. And, there, and there's debate among even Christians about that sort of thing. But as you think of that question, let me ask you this. There's a question you have to ask yourself. As you examine your own life and and see all the ins and outs about your own life, the things that you do and that you don't do, you have to ask yourself this question. What is the goal of everything that I do? What's the purpose for why I do the things I do? And what's the purpose for why I don't do the things that I don't do? I would suggest that if you, if you peel back the layers of your own life and, and begin to get under your own skin a bit and find the root of the reasons why you do what you do and you don't do what you don't do, you'll find that the answer for all of us is really the same. The goal for everything you do and don't do is to get you back into the garden, as it were. 
That's ultimately what you're trying to do. Your whole life is marked by your longing for that garden. Your whole life is marked by your efforts to get back into it and the wounds and the scars that you bear, the pains and the regrets that you experience, even the dissatisfaction that plagues you at every turn in your life is because you're not in that garden. And you want to be. The story of the Bible, the story of all of Christianity is not to list out all the things that you're supposed to be doing in order to make God happy. That's often how we think of it. It's simply not that. It is rather the story of how God came down to lead you back to the place where you're supposed to be. And Revelation now describes that place, the new heavens and the new earth, here as a garden city of sorts. And it describes it here with two main images. There are two main features of this garden that John sees. There's a river and there's a tree. Is it the same garden or is it different? Yes. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Genesis 2 had explained about this river something. It had said that a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. There was a river very present there in Genesis 2. And so John is, of course, seeing something here that's very familiar to him because the biblical imagery is constant throughout Scripture, not just in Genesis, but elsewhere too. In the first psalm, which is well known by many, we read that blessed is the man who is like a tree planted by streams of water. And you wonder, is that literal? Is a man who's blessed actually planted by streams of water? Well, you know it's poetic imagery. So, no, in a sense, it's not literal. You're not planted by a stream of water. But it's a figurative picture of something that's very significant. The 23rd Psalm, The Lord is my shepherd. He leads me beside still waters. Again, is it literal? Well, no, and yes, it's poetic. It's a picture of something much greater. It's a water that God wants to provide for you. The wisdom of Proverbs explains to us marriage in this way. It says, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Again, the imagery so powerful and at work there suggesting that there is a water that's meant for you to satisfy and to fill you to some degree. And there is water elsewhere that is not yours, that is not for you to engage with. The prophet Isaiah wrote it this way. He said, God speaking to his people, My people will not hunger or thirst, for in mercy by springs of water I will guide them. God's promising something to his people. I'll guide them by springs of water and it will take care of them. Now there, is God promising to quench their physical thirst? No. He's suggesting that there's something much deeper. In fact, the prophet Jeremiah speaks of it in some other terms. And I think this is helpful. In Jeremiah 2, God is declaring sort of the state of the union to his people. And and he's addressing the universe in very poetic terms. And this is what he says. God says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this thing. My people have committed two evils. 
Okay, so God is speaking to the heavens, and he's about to, to do something that only God can really do, because matters like this are always very complicated, but God can simplify things into a crystal clear picture illustration. And here's what he does. My people have committed two evils. Number one, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. And number two, they have hewed out cisterns for themselves that can hold no water. Fascinating, isn't it? God summarizes the problem of his people in those two things. My people have committed two sins. The sins of Israel were profound and deep and historical. There were all kinds of problems. I mean, the list was really, really long. But here God summarizes it in terms of thirst. What's he saying? He's saying to his people, you have turned away from me, the one who designed you, created you, and filled you with meaning. You've turned away from me. And you've begun to search for meaning in things that by themselves have no meaning. In other words, people, you're thirsty. You're thirsty, he says. In the past year, Mary and I have come aware of, uh, in circles of people outside of this church, aware of three divorces and watched a couple of them unfold. And each one is different in its own sorts of ways. But, but each of these three cases had a husband who was the particular point of problem. Now, divorce is always complicated, always complicated. There are always two sides, multiple sides at work. But in these cases, the husband was the primary problem. And, and in these cases, one husband indulged in anger, one husband indulged in pornography, and one husband indulged in substance abuse. Those were the difference among the three, but they had striking similarities as well. Each one of these men had a loving wife. She was not perfect, but she was a loving and faithful wife who wanted her marriage to work. Each husband had healthy children, healthy, well-adjusted, and and, in all normal terms, normal kids. Each husband had material security surrounding him. Each husband had a respectable career, And yet, each husband just couldn't say no to these things outside of his own life. Anger, pornography, substance abuse. Why? Why could they not say no? Is it because they were sinners? Is it because they were just bad guys? That's way too simple. We we can't just say it's just because they were sinners. Of, Of course they're sinners. But it's not because of that that they couldn't say no here. They were thirsty. They were spiritually dehydrated. They were longing for something that they just couldn't get their hands on. And in their hearts, they thought, if I indulge in this thing, then it will fill me up. But are we really any different than these men? We're not. I mean, a a doctor can tell you the, the typical telltale signs of physical dehydration, headaches and body pains and dry mouth and more. There are all kinds of signs a doctor might suggest to you to watch for and say, you need to drink more water. But what are the ways in which you show spiritual dehydration? What are the ways in which your heart 
shows you that you are deep down thirsty. One way to approach that is to ask, what are the things that you just can't say no to? It might be your work. I mean, that's a very common one. Many people just can't say no to work, and they work, and they work, and they work hours and hours and hours, and they just slave and labor in order to achieve something. They just can't say no to their work. Others, in a maybe simpler fashion, can't say no to their to-do list. Maybe just at home, maybe your to-do list is always running, and you're always talking about, I'm going to eventually get rid of the to-do list, but it never goes away because you just can't say no. Maybe it's just straightening up your house, and, and you just feel like it's always got to be just, just right. We all have our sorts of things. Maybe it's social media or video games. The things that we just are drawn to, we constantly turn to them and we're drawn to them. We just, in, in our spare moments, we can't turn away from those things. Maybe your thing is people. Maybe you just can't say no to people because you've got to have yourself surrounded by people all the time. Maybe your thing is not people. Maybe it's isolation. that You just can't say no to being by yourself all the time and it's hard for you to be around people. Maybe your thing is food. Or maybe specifically sugar. You know, oftentimes we just can't say no to sugar. That seems like such a, a little thing, but is it? I mean, just this past week, I, I drove through the Chick-fil-A drive through just to, on my, my way somewhere to grab a quick sandwich for lunch. And I like Chick-fil-A. It's, it's mostly healthy, relatively. And I pulled up to the, the, the menu board in the drive through and I saw chicken salad sandwich. It looked really healthy. It has green lettuce on it and whole wheat bread. And so I spoke to the voice in the box there. Can I have a chicken salad sandwich? And the voice in the box said, would you like to make that a meal? And, you know, my first thought was, well, that's why I'm here, of course. This is going to be my meal. But I knew better than that. And I, and I said, does that mean that it comes with a soft drink? And the voice in the box said, yes, soft drink. And I said, very wisely, no, I don't need the cup of sugar that comes with the soft drink. And then these words rolled out of my mouth. I don't even know where they came from. But I'll take a chocolate chip cookie. (laughs) Where did that come from? Some things you just can't say no to because you're thirsty. Now, those things are not bad in and of themselves, right? They're just normal parts of our life. We, We can't avoid those things, and we shouldn't avoid those things necessarily. They're not necessarily bad things, but we use them to quench our thirst in our soul when actually they are cisterns that can't hold water for us. So we get angry. We put our eyes on something that our eyes ought not to be on. We use substances, sugar, or worse, Because we just can't say no. Our souls are thirsty. And then we recognize that thirst, that longing, that desire for other things. And we begin to feel what next? We begin to feel guilty. Because we figure, well, if I'm a Christian, I ought not to long for things. I I have so much already. We might assume that God looks at us and says, but look, I've, I've already given you so many things. I mean, I've given you the gospel. I've given you some friends. I've given you... Health, and I've given you some, some, some resources to take care of yourself or your family. How much more could you want? Come on, why are you complaining? 
And we assume that God approaches us that way, but you know what? He, he doesn't do that. He doesn't blame us for our thirst. In fact, he actually acknowledges it. He acknowledges it. In John chapter 7, there's a Jewish feast in Jerusalem, and all the Jews are there, and Jesus comes along and attends the feast. And at the end of the feast, on the last day, in John chapter 7, Jesus stands up before the crowd and says these words. Now, this doesn't sound too controversial, but it really is. He stands up and he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. That's what he said as he stood up at this feast. And now John accounts for the fact that some people who heard him debated about what he meant. What did he mean by that? Isn't that interesting that he said that? There were other people who actually wanted to arrest him for it. And you know what? I think those are the people who actually understood what he meant. They're the ones who got it. He was saying, come to me and drink. There's no one and no thing in this world that can satisfy your thirst except for me. It was actually a claim to deity. He was standing up before those people and saying, look at me. I am God. Some people understood it, and they wanted to arrest him for it. Ironically, those same people insisted on themselves continuing to just lap up sand to quench their thirst. Your thirst is normal in this world. It's totally normal in this fallen, broken world. But you, like me, often simply drink the wrong things. When John sees the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God, what's he seeing here? What what is it? It's the fulfillment of this invitation to quench the desires of a heart that is bound to worship, to worship things, to worship something. Just like the Samaritan woman at the well who had five husbands and another who wasn't her husband, and Jesus explained to her and spoke to her, and she was interested in the living water that he offered to her. We also are looking for ways to worship, for things to worship. And part of our return to the garden is that our worshipful hearts are finally put in the right direction. Verse 3 says something that I think we, we easily we miss. It says, And his servants will worship him. Now that's not how we read it. As we, we rush over that to read it, we read it in a very different way, which completely, I think, changes the meaning. We read it like this. We say, and his servants will worship him. And we think, well, of course. I mean, it's heaven, and when we're in heaven, we'll worship Jesus, and maybe there'll be a basketball court where we can go play when we're not doing that, and we can go do some other stuff. But we'll worship him, and that's fine. We assume that's what we mean, but no, that's not what it says. It says, and his servants will worship him. In other words, no longer will you worship your possessions and your security and your relationships. No longer will you worship your diet and your exercise and your self-discipline. No longer will you worship your peace and quiet and control. No longer will you worship your college acceptances and your, your accomplishments and your accolades. No longer will you worship your self-gratification and power and privilege. No longer will you worship those things. In this life, your heart longs for what your eyes can't see. But when you drink from the river of the water of life, you will worship Him. And so you will thirst no more. But then there's this second prominent image here in this garden that John sees because the return to the garden addresses 
not only the fact that in this life you were thirsty, but also the fact that in this life you were dying. On either side of the river was the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. Now, this is not just any tree, of course. This is the tree of life, right? And once again, John is surely thinking, I've seen the river, and now I'm seeing a tree. Is this the same garden that I'm familiar with, or is this a different place altogether? And apparently, this tree exists on both sides of the river. It's on either side. I don't know quite what that means. Maybe a bigger, fuller, or more powerful tree of life. I don't know. John must be recalling the drama from that first garden at this point. You know, he's, he's remembering that that place was a place of such goodness and such freedom. Every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food was there in that garden. And in the middle of all of that, as if it weren't enough, was the tree of life and that other tree. There was that other tree, you know, and and God gave man instructions about it, saying this. He said, you may eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, what was that tree? It's a question I guess theologians have been asking and wrestling with for ages and ages. What exactly was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and there's, again, debate about that. Did it actually exist? Was it actually a, a tree with bark and leaves and branches and, and fruit on it? Was it actually a tree in a garden? Or was it some poetic figurative image that didn't really exist, but in our minds we should think about what it means? I don't know. Some debate what it was. Personally, I don't. I don't debate whether it was real or not. I'm pretty confident that it was. I have no reason to believe that it wasn't actually a real tree any less than Adam and Eve were real people. And that the the creation account was a real account historically speaking. It was a real tree and it had real fruit. But I I tend to think that it had almost sacramental meaning. Just like we come to this table here and there really is real bread and real wine on that table down there. I I don't have to try to prove that to you because you know it's there, right? And you're going to come and and experience it in a moment. You're going to hold the real bread and you're going to taste the real wine. And you know they're real, but you know they also indicate something much more significant than what they are. It was only fruit, but it signified something greater. And I think it was this. Self-sufficient, autonomous determination of good and evil. A job that only God can take. A job that no man can claim. It was, in a sense, a claim to have all knowledge, which only God can have. In a sense, it was to take the the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of, of good and evil was to claim to be God. And therefore, at the moment it happened, their souls died. And their bodies began to die. And Yahweh, at that point, extended one of the most gracious acts of tough love that's ever been known. There he said, Now lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever in spiritual death, God sent them away and and posted an angel at the gate of the garden to prevent them from coming back in. 
It was a gracious discipline to avoid a permanent curse. You know, sometimes parents have to do that with their children. And, and, and you young ones recognize that sometimes mom and dad simply say no. And they, they lock the door to whatever it is and prevent you from going there because they know that it is eternal death for you. And this is exactly what God did. It's a gracious discipline to avoid a permanent curse because God had redemption in mind and the trees would inevitably come into play again. I'm a fan of trees. I love trees. Some of you, maybe, maybe you join me in that. I hope you do. I love trees. In fact, I can remember days when our kids were younger when I would be standing in our backyard just staring up at the branches of the live oak trees. And my kids would come and say, what are you looking at? Because they were looking for squirrels or, uh, you know, an alien or something. They thought, I must be staring at something profound up there. And I, and I would say, well, I'm just I'm looking at the trees. They were kind of baffled by that. They were beautiful. I love trees. And I think that in the new heavens and the new earth, when there will be no more pastors, no more ministers, because I guess there won't be a need for us at that point, I'll have to find a new job. And it, it might be... I, one of my favorite TV shows that we get to watch every now and then is Treehouse Masters. Have you guys ever seen Treehouse Masters? Where these guys go around building these fancy tree houses in these places for people and they cost as much of a, as a real house. and all. It's pretty cool. I'd like to do that in the new heavens and the new earth. And If I do, I might hire John Hickman because he's, he is a treehouse master. I can tell you that. I love trees. In, in California, I, I once had a chance with a very dear friend of mine to... to enjoy a zipline course in the giant redwood trees on the coastal mountains in the Bay Area. A zipline course that was there in these, in these giant redwood trees. It was fascinating. And in talking to the guide about the construction of the zipline course, there were, there were platforms circling these giant trees 100 feet off the ground. And he explained that in the construction of, of this course... The crews that built it had to bore holes into these giant ancient trees in order to mount the platforms up high. And he said, what we learned was that as they bored those holes, water began to gush out. And once they had the holes bored, we had to wait a half an hour to an hour to let the water finish draining and let the tree begin to seal itself and heal up before we could continue construction. Because life began to just pour out of these massive old trees. You know, if you look up tree in your concordance in the back of your Bible, you'll find a number of places in Scripture where it occurs. And many times it has to do with life. The way of the righteous is a tree of life, Proverbs 11 tells us. Trees are a life in Scripture. But they also indicate the total opposite, death. In Deuteronomy 21, there's one of those odd passages as God provides for Moses the guidelines for living in this world. And God explains to Moses that there will be criminals whose crime is punishable by death. And if they are hanged on a tree and there they die, it means that they are cursed by God. I think that the tree figures so prominently here at the end of the Bible not just because of its the poetic license that's, that's there, but because it's a practical image of our suspension, as it were, between life and death, between death and life in this world. In this world, we often feel suspended between future joy that we anticipate in the book of Revelation and 
present anguish that we feel so heavily, so heavily now. A pastor friend of mine who is in another state emailed to a group of us just this past week asking for us to pray for him because a little over a week ago, his father died. His dad died unexpectedly. His dad was healthy and well. In fact, he played golf the day before. He didn't expect his death at all. And my friend was asking for prayer for himself to deal with his father's death. His his death was hard enough for my friend to digest and deal with. But what made it even harder was the timing of the news. My friend said that the, the call to notify me came two hours before I was supposed to officiate a wedding for a young couple in our church. And so I had now this news that my father had died. I couldn't just go. There's a wedding. There's a whole wedding party and arrangements to take care of. I'm the, the, the officiating minister. I had to, to continue with my job there. And, and so he did. And he said, as that wedding began to unfold and the bride appeared at the back of the aisle, he said, the only thing I could think standing there was, my daughters won't get to have their grandpa at their wedding. And here he was caught between the joy of marital bliss and the grief of death that had come immediately into his life on that day. And he was struggling. He was struggling between the joy and the grief. He was struggling between the life and the death. He was stuck. And he said, guys, pray for me. Now, many of you can feel that suspension between life and death yourself. You you feel the weight of depression that comes on you and it takes you into a dark hole that you can't climb out of in your own mind and strength and yet you know you're surrounded by people who love you and care for you and understand to a degree what you're doing and they call you out of it some of you are are engaged in the grief of dealing with loss and it's a burden to you and yet you know that you're surrounded by the memories that you have that that are joyful that bring happiness to you that that are legitimately valid and powerful. And you feel like you've been hung on a tree, as it were, cursed by God. But the gospel can come with real subtlety in visions like this in Revelation. The river and the tree, they reside in the midst of something very important, don't they? What's there? The throne. The throne of God and of what? The Lamb. So the lamb is so prominent in Revelation. We, we continue to hear about the lamb, the lamb, the lamb. The Revelation keeps throwing the lamb back at us. In fact, in Revelation 7, you might remember that little interlude between the 6th and the 7th. I, I think it was the seals. And we saw this picture of the, the, the church universal worldwide as God calls his people to himself. And it explains there that the lamb will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear. How is it that the Lamb does that? It's because the Lamb and the tree are deeply intertwined with each other. George Herbert was a a British poet and priest back in the 1600s, and he wrote a, a very long poem called The Sacrifice. And this poem is is working its way through from the perspective of Jesus himself, the grief that he bore as the sacrifice. And the refrain is, was ever a grief like mine? The answer is no, there was never a grief like the grief that Jesus carried. And one stanza says this, All who pass by, behold and see 
Man stole the fruit, but I must climb the tree, the tree of life to all but only me. Was ever grief like mine? Paul, in Galatians, in that letter, explains a bit of this. He explains that Jesus, the Lamb, redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. How? By being hanged on a tree, the cross. The only way that we can have the tree of life is for the Son of God Himself to climb the tree of death. His tree of death, the cross, is our tree of life. And so, he says in his letter to the Ephesians, way back in Revelation 2, he says, to the one who conquers, that is, to the one who makes his way through this life with the the thirst and the death that surrounds it, looking in faith to me, the one who conquers that, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And there John arrives and finds a tree laden with fruit to fill and with leaves to heal So much so that no longer will there be anything accursed, he says. But the best part of it all is not the absence of cursing. It's the presence of a third image that's there that we simply can't ignore. There's not just a river and a tree. There's also a face. The face of God. Verse 4, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Two weeks ago we saw in Revelation 21... The chapter before, the first eight verses, we saw there the new heavens and the new earth and the fact that God will dwell with his people and and fulfill the promise to do that for us. And that dwelling with anticipated the fulfillment of Aaron's benediction, his blessing back in Numbers. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you, which would have been such a dramatic thing for Moses and Aaron to tell the people. It would be a death sentence. And yet it's not. Here it's fulfilled. Here the people of God drink from the river, they eat from the tree, they're healed, and they see the face of God himself. People who live in this world, including you and me, are thirsty and they're dying. They're desperately grasping for answers to both of those problems. They're trying to to quench their thirst by attracting the faces of men, by making a name for themselves. And they're trying to ignore their dying soul by avoiding the face of God, which they instinctively, I think, know that apart from Christ would be their death. But the gospel calls you to anticipate something else. It calls you to anticipate the undoing of both of those problems. And the former things will no longer come to mind. Our last communion song that we're going to sing in just a moment sings this. On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. I am bound. I am bound. I am bound for the promised land. So cast a wishful eye to the place you can't quite see. Because the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty, Come. Let the one who desires take the water of life and drink deeply without price. Amen. Father, we pray that you would be at work in and through your word. 
Help us, Lord, to trust you and to believe this good news and enable us by faith to drink deeply from the water of life that you grant to us even as we find life in the tree that is the cross on which your Son died for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.